Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I've read recently about, uh, anyone ever heard of Ernest Hemingway, the writer, American writer? Yeah. Wrote a, I wrote a short story um, back in, I think, 1936 called The Capital of the World. And in this story, Hemingway, he, uh, he writes about a father and, a, and his teenage son. And his teenage son is called Paco, which uh, is quite a common name, I think, in Spain, short for Francisco. Um, and basically, his son, his teenage son, wronged him, um, stole a load of money, and ran away from home because he was so ashamed of what he had done. So this boy runs away from home, his father is distraught, and his father searches all over Spain for his son, but he just cannot find his son. And then the story goes that his father finally comes to Madrid, capital of Spain, last attempt to try and find his son. So what he does is he places an ad in, in, in a daily newspaper, a large daily newspaper in Madrid, and the ad says this, very simply, just says, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. That's the ad. So his father places the ad and he's praying that his son is in Madrid. He doesn't even know if he is. He's praying that his son will see this ad and come to the Hotel Montana at 12 o'clock on Tuesday and they'll be reunited. So on Tuesday at noon, the father arrives at the hotel and when he got there, he couldn't believe his eyes. Because what greeted him when he arrived was the fact that an entire squadron of police officers had to be called out to keep order among the 800 boys who had turned up. All of them called Paco, and all of them wanting to find forgiveness from their father in front of the Hotel Montana. 800 teenage boys named Paco had read the ad in the newspaper and had hoped it was for them. Okay, now there are a lot of people called Paco in Spain back then in the 30s. So yes, that's true. But all of these boys had come to receive forgiveness that they so desperately desired. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about forgiveness and what it means and how it can transform us when we receive it and how it can bless and help other people when they receive it from us. And also how God's forgiveness is just so amazing. So today we're going to start our, our, our summer sermon series that we're going to be going through over the next sort of month and a half towards the end to the end of, of August. We're going to be going through the Psalms. We're not going to be doing all of the Psalms over the summer. We're going to be a select version of all of the Psalms because that would be a very long summer if we were going to do them all. Um, so this morning we're going to start um, by looking at Psalm 32. Psalm 32, which is all about, as I mentioned earlier, it's all about forgiveness. Now, most scholars uh, believe Psalm 32 was written by, by David after his sin uh, with Bathsheba and his confrontation with uh, the prophet Nathan. Um, most scholars believe David wrote Psalm 32 after this had all happened. And, and in Psalm 32, what happens is, as we'll see, David reflects on having received forgiveness from God for what he had done. And we'll read it just in a, in a few moments. But I just want to say before we do, if you're looking in your Bibles, you'll probably see something just in the little title, um, which is a, a mascal. This psalm is a mascal. And basically, a mascal means either 
a contemplation or an instruction. <coughs> a contemplation or an instruction. And basically, that's kind of what this psalm is like. The first half of it, verses 1 to 7, is David contemplating the forgiveness that he's just received. Like mulling it over, being like, just think about how amazing it is. And then the second half of this psalm, verses 8 to 11, as we'll see, is David instructing people, is saying, okay, here's what I've learned from the forgiveness I've received. Here's what you should do as a result, giving advice off the back of it. So the, the little word masculine is actually quite helpful for us to understand what the psalm is all about. And the fact that it's a, 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 a contemplation, so the fact that the first seven verses of it is about just mulling over what Jesus has done for us, it's really interesting. In your Bibles, there's a little footnote and it will say, I mean, depending on what Bible you have, but it should say that after verse 4, 5, and 7, the original Hebrew had the word sila written in it, S-E-L-A-H, which basically means that at these points, these are times in the passage where we're to pause and reflect on what has being said. Okay, so David's saying these things about forgiveness, but he's wanting us to actually stop, just think about these things, mull them over, let them... Let them settle on your heart. Okay, so that's, that's background to Psalm 32. Are we ready to read it? Are we excited to read it? Okay, you don't have to answer that. That's fine. We're going to read it anyway. Right, Psalm 32. David says this. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. And there you have it, Psalm 32. It's an entirety, not too long. As I said earlier, it's kind of a game of two halves, this psalm. So the first seven verses are all about David reflecting on the forgiveness he's received. And then the, the second bit, verses 8 to 11, is him basically telling everyone, here's what you should do as a result. Here's what you guys need to do. Okay, so we're going to just look at it in that way. I'm just going to talk about two things. So first point I want to make is all about that, him reflecting on forgiveness. And the second point is how we should share with others about this forgiveness. So point one is, and you'll see, I'll explain how I've got the title of this point in a few moments. But basically point one is forgiveness brings bundles of happiness not one bundle many bundles of happiness okay just so we be clear on that all right i will explain all right forgiveness brings bundles of happiness now one of the presents i got from elizabeth at christmas was uh, a copy of rembrandt's the return of the prodigal son we've got a picture of it coming up maybe there there it is it's quite dark but you can kind of see it's the sun in the story of the prodigal son, and he's returned to the father. And it's just the father embracing 
his, his son. And it's quite difficult to see with the light, but in the, in the, in the copy that I have, which is in, in, our, in our bedroom, um, you, just, you, you can see on the son's face, even though it's just turned to the side, there's a sense of, of relief. There's a sense of joy. His eyes are closed, just like, like a burden has been lifted off his shoulders now that he has returned home and he has been forgiven by his father. And also, I don't know if it's me, but I just, I can see in that a sense of joy as well. There's a happiness there. There's a like, yes. And as we know with the story, what's going to happen is they're going to have a massive party, an absolutely massive party. You know, we had a barbecue, a men's barbecue on Friday night. And John Langley was going on about this like amazing piece of meat that he had. Right. And it was amazing. And he slow cooked it for an entire day. All right. But like, at this party, they have an entire animal, like the whole animal. So this was an amazing party to celebrate the joy of forgiveness. And when we look at verses 1 and 2 of our, our passage here, the word blessed is used twice. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no Deceit. Now, the word blessed here, a lot of commentators say it, would be better translated as happy. Really? It'd be much simpler for it, just saying happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. When your transgressions are forgiven, you're going to be happy, right? Now, what they've also noticed by this passage, if you go into the original language, is that the word blessed here is in plural, not singular. Okay? So it's like you're going to be happy but very happy, multiple happinesses, you know. It's basically, it's in plural to emphasize how happy you're going to be when your transgressions, when your sins have been forgiven. You're going to have an abundance of happiness. The old uh, Baptist preacher, I say old, I mean, he's dead now, but so yeah. Uh, (laughs) Charles Hatton Spurgeon, um, he's not really old. That's... (laughs) He was old once, I'm sure. Yeah, back in the 1800s. I say old because he was around a long time ago. But anyway, C.H. Spurgeon said this about this verse, which I think is brilliant. He says, the word blessed is in the plural, which kind of means, the meaning here is, oh, the blessednesses, or the double joys, or the, and here's where I got my point from, the bundles of happiness, or the mountains of delight. He's basically saying, you know, bundles of happiness, mountains of delight come, when our transgressions, when our sins are forgiven. Isn't that good? Yeah, that's what he says. So that's, that's what happens when our sins are forgiven and we know they've been forgiven. And we're like, yes, joy, fun, happy. Let's have a party. Yes. Now, that's the first thing we learn from this psalm is that forgiveness brings huge joy, massive joy, bundles of happiness, mountains of delight, blessedness of blessedness, however you want to put it. It brings a lot of joy. But I think this raises three questions, okay? Firstly, what is forgiveness? (laughs) Secondly, why do I need God's forgiveness? You know, like if I do something bad to Mark, why don't I just need his forgiveness? I say, sorry, you you forgive me. We're sorted. Why do I need God in that? Why do I need to say sorry to God if I do something to Mark, okay? That's the second thing we're going to look at. And third thing I want us to look at is... Why should God's forgiveness bring me bundles of joy? Why, sh- why, is that? why should that be the case? Okay, so first thing, what is forgiveness? This is a very short point, okay? I'm just going to have a definition here. Forgiveness is naming a wrong, it is a wrong, and condemning it, but then not counting the wrong against the person, but releasing them from the debt 
that is owed. That's forgiveness. Now, the wrongdoing is lifted from the, the wrongdoer's shoulders. And you can kind of see that in the, that painting of the prodigal. The wrongdoing, it's almost like it's just been lifted off his shoulders. The weight has gone. Okay? So that's what forgiveness is. Now, why do I need God's forgiveness? Okay? Like I said earlier, if I do something wrong against Mark, um, why do I need to ask God's forgiveness for that? Why can't I just ask Mark's forgiveness and then we're done? Okay, why does God come into it? Well, basically... Very simply, because the world is God's, and when we hurt God's creation, which Mark is part of, we're hurting him. That's it. Croatian uh, theologian Miroslav Volf puts it this way, much longer way than I have put it. But he basically says this, list: God is not just in heaven, God is also on earth. The earth and all that is in it are God's in a way that a teddy bear is a child's. You ever seen a, a child cuddle a teddy bear? They love it, they care for it. Their well-being is God's joy. Their pain is God's suffering. When you transgress against your neighbor, it involves God because you're transgressing against one of God's creatures and therefore against God. In relation to our transgressions, God is not simply a just and all-knowing referee who remains outside these purely human disputes. No, God is always also an injured party. For every transgression against the neighbor, apology is owed both to the neighbor and to God. Okay? So that's why we need God's forgiveness. That's why he's in the equation on this when we sit. Okay, so that's why we ask God for forgiveness. But you might be thinking, hold on, Andy. We ain't Catholics here. You know, we don't do the confession box and, you know, bless me, Father, I have sinned. You know, sin is last. Surely forgiveness is a one-time thing. Surely, you know, we come to Jesus, we say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin, and we are forgiven for every sin we have done and every sin that we will do. That's grace. That's because of what Jesus did on the cross. Surely that's true. And that is all absolutely bang on. That is absolutely all definitely true. Basically, why we need to ask for forgiveness again and again and confess our sins again and again, not necessarily going to a confession box or anything, but we can do it to each other and we can just pray it to God ourselves directly. Why we need to do that again and again is basically the difference between positional forgiveness and relational forgiveness, okay? So positional forgiveness is what every believer receives when they trust in Christ. The moment they do, they are given forgiveness. They're forgiven for every sin they've ever committed and every sin they will ever commit in their future. Done. Taken to the cross, end of. Those sins are taken as far as the east is from the west. Price is paid by Christ on the cross once and for all. And as a result, when someone comes to Christ, becomes a Christian, they become a child of God. Basically, another way of putting that is they're given a position as a son or daughter in God's family. That's positional forgiveness. The forgiveness you ask of God to become a Christian, to become part of his family. And that happens once and that can't be changed. Okay? Now, relational forgiveness is a bit different. If my son Max, who's six, does something wrong against me and doesn't ask for forgiveness, no matter how many times he does it, it's not going to affect his position as my son. He's always going to be my son, no matter what he does. But if he keeps doing bad things to me and never asks for forgiveness, even though it would affect his position as my son, it may start to affect our relationship over time. As he grows up, 
and he keeps doing wrong things and never says sorry and never asks for forgiveness, eventually we will drift apart. Eventually we will become distant. Eventually we may even become estranged, never even seeing each other or not having much of a relationship at all. And the same is true with God. If we don't come to God regularly and confess our sins and ask for forgiveness, it won't affect our position as his child. That can't change. But it may start to affect our relationship. So in times in our lives when God feels distant, one possible reason is unrepented sin. Things you haven't confessed and you haven't asked for forgiveness for. That can affect our relationship with God, which is why regularly confessing our sins, now we don't have to go overdrive on this and be like doing it all the time, but regularly confessing our sins and asking God to forgive us is a good and a healthy thing for us to do as Christians. One way that's great to do it is just with other people. You know, maybe another believer, another friend, another Christian, just confess things you've done wrong. They confess theirs and you pray together. You bring it before God. Or you can just pray to God yourself. But it's a good and healthy thing to be confessing our sins and asking forgiveness regularly. Okay, third thing. Why should God's forgiveness bring me bundles of happiness? Why? Well, maybe the best place to begin answering this question is by understanding what it's like when you're, you know, when you're unforgiven. When you haven't received forgiveness, like just compare the forgiveness to the happiness of being forgiven in verses one and two to the burden of remaining unforgiven in verses three to four, which we see from David. David's like, when I kept silent, and I don't think this is metaphor here. I think this is true. It's just when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God's hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And we know with David that he, he kept his murder and adultery secret for at least nine months before confessing it to God. So there was nine months where this was churning up on the inside of him. Nine months where he's like, he just knew it was wrong, but he hadn't, he hadn't confessed it. He hadn't asked God to forgive him. And during this time, his sins, they took a physical toll on him. They took a physical toll on his body. David writes of his bones aching, his personal groaning, his lack of sleep, and his, his overall loss, loss of vitality in life. And again, I don't think that's metaphor. I think these things are true. I think unrepented sin can do these things to you. You may even know people in your lives, and I think, you know, I think actually that's an issue that someone I know has. Okay? That's what unforgiveness can do. But when we confess our sins to God, we no longer need to hide. We don't need to cover up. We can be free. And that's what David does. We see it in verse 5. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You can almost feel the relief in verse 5. It's just the weight is lifted off. David, he's like, yes, I am free. You know, our automatic response to sin is always to hide it to cover it up that's what Adam and Eve did when they sinned but confessing it to God in all its ugliness frees us from that we don't have to hide we don't have to cover up but rather than being the one who we hide from God actually becomes our hiding place 
The place we go to becomes our refuge, becomes our safe place. And we see that in verse 7. And that's really important because in relationships, it's really important to feel safe when admitting a mistake. You might have that in work. You know, if you feel safe, you'll admit a mistake to someone. If you don't, you'll try and hide it. It's really important for us to feel safe when admitting a mistake or when asking for forgiveness. If we don't feel safe, if we feel fear that we're going to be condemned or there's going to be retaliation, you'll struggle to be open. You'll struggle to be honest and vulnerable. Confessing our sins is important, but if we don't feel safe, we we won't fully do it. We'll do the minimum amount that we can get away with. But we have to trust that we don't get destroyed when we're honest about our feelings. And verse 7 shows us what a safe place God is to do that. David says of God, you're my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. So I just want to say to us all here, we don't have to be afraid of being honest about our sins. We can share them with God in all their ugliness and all their warts because he is our refuge. He is our deliverance from our sin. I just imagine that father finding his Paco amongst the 800 and going up to him and saying, you know, my boy, you hurt us so much. You know, your mom cried her eyes out for like two days after you left. You took money, you know, what you did hurt. But look, we've forgiven you. We don't hold it against you. Give me a hug. And they embrace. And the father says, come on, let's, let's get some food. Let's go home. You know, you can just imagine... Imagine the release, imagine the joy, the bundles of happiness, the burden that's lifted on that teenage son. You know, ultimately, we're only going to have joy in something that we think is worth having joy in. Okay, that might be a complicated, I'll explain. We're only going to have joy in something that we think is worth having joy in. See, Joy or happiness involves viewing the object of the joy or happiness as good. Okay, so having joy is tied to how we perceive or view things rather than just what things are in themselves. Okay, now, super simple example, and you might think this is silly, but it's not actually. It helps illustrate it really well. When Man City won the treble this year, okay, that brought some people... Lots of joy. It brought other people no joy at all, okay? It's not about what happened. Everyone experienced the reality of what happened there. It's about how you perceive it. It's about how you view what has happened. And I know this is a big jump from treble to forgiveness, but the reality is the same. Do we view God's forgiveness as good? Or do we just view it as Yeah, it happens. It's what he does. Do we view it as worth rejoicing over? Do we? Or it's just, yeah, it's there. It happens. Or do we rob ourselves of joy by failing to view God's forgiveness as good? Point one is finished. Point two is coming. Right. It's it's shorter. Don't worry. It's shorter. 
So second point this morning, we've looked at because forgiveness brings bundles of joy. I think we can all amen that. I think we're in agreement on that. Yes. Awesome. Just want to talk now about sharing with others about this forgiveness, which uh, is exactly what David does in verses 8 to 11. David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. And we see here, David is basically sharing what he has learned about forgiveness. He's experienced what it's like when you know you're completely forgiven by God. And he's like, this is awesome. But he also knows what it's like when you're hiding from God, when you're not willing to confess, not willing to seek forgiveness. And he's basically saying, look, that's a horrible existence. And he's urging everyone to just, look, don't do that. No, do the opposite. Seek God's forgiveness rather than hide from it. And he compares those who resist seeking God's forgiveness to stubborn animals. Okay? You're like, you know, you're like a, like a horse or a mule. That's basically what he's saying. If you're, if you're not going to go for forgiveness, you're like a horse or a mule. And it's the opposite, basically, he's saying here, of being wise. And one of the key differences between the wicked and those who follow God is that those who follow God are surrounded by God's love. Not good. They know that nothing separates them from God. Those who follow God might also have woes like the wicked do, but being surrounded by God's unfailing love, that's what makes all the difference. That's the difference between the wicked and those who follow God. Those who follow God are surrounded by God's unfailing love. And that's why David can command, and he's commanding, he's commanding those who trust in the Lord, which is us. He's commanding those who trust in the Lord to rejoice and be glad and to sing and to sing. Which Dana's like, this is going to lead perfectly into worship, isn't it? Yeah, I'm like, perfect segue. But we're not done, I'm sorry. I'm going to say some other stuff and it might not work. Okay. You know, um, the the guy who started New Frontiers Movement of Churches, which is a movement of churches across the world, we're part of New Frontiers historically. There's a guy called Terry Virgo. Uh, he's, he's still alive he's in his 80s now. Um, yeah, I know. I'm just, just letting you know he's still alive. I like to let you know the people I'm quoting are the dead or alive. Okay, that's pretty much it. Right, this guy's still alive. Um, but a friend of mine went to, went to visit him one time. I think he was, this friend of mine was, was going to do like a conference or speak at his church or something. So he stayed with Terry Virgo at his, at his house. And he said, yeah, I woke up the next day and I could hear singing coming from a room in the house. I was like, what is that? It's like seven in the morning. What? Who's singing at this time of the day? So he got up to investigate, and he went, and he could see, like, in the study in in Terry Virgo's house, the door was slightly ajar, and Terry Virgo is having his quiet time, but he's singing. He's singing praises to God. And basically what he found out was that Terry Virgo always sings in his quiet times. Quiet times aren't quiet. They're very loud, actually, which is probably helpful if you have a detached house, you know, you don't have thin walls or anything, but he's singing. But Terry Virgo notices my friend kind of peering through the little gap in the window. says, hey, come join me. And my friend's like... Okay, so kind of sheepishly walks in and joins in, the two of them basically singing, you know, worship songs to God in this little study. And he was like, yeah, it was very awkward to begin with, but, um, 
But I, I got really into it, actually. It was strangely a very powerful experience of starting each day, and he does it every day, apparently, starting each day by just singing praises to God, rejoicing and giving thanks for the forgiveness that we have received. It was strangely powerful, he said. I'm not, like, the application of this is not you all to sing in your quiet times. You know, you're welcome to not do that. But there is something in singing that is just beautiful, beautiful way of responding to God's forgiveness. You know, I, uh, I walked past that picture of the, the return of the prodigal by Rembrandt um, just on our wall this morning as I was, I, was, I was coming here. And I just looked at it and um, I don't know, just <laughs> as I looked at this young boy who's returned home, he's wasted the family inheritance, but his father's forgiven him and is embracing him. And I don't know, I could just see the relief and the, the joy and, and the happiness and the burden lifted off his shoulders. Now, I'm not one of these people who reads like a million things into like a painting, but I don't know, I just got that sense as I looked at it. And that's what God's forgiveness brings. That's what it brings us. And that is good news. And another thing I just couldn't get out of my head this week was, I mean, the other, you know, 799 Pacos who were there outside this hotel yearning for, their, yearning for forgiveness from their fathers, but their father wasn't there, you know? And, and I, you know, I don't know if this story's true, Ernest Hemingway maybe made it up, whatever. It doesn't really matter, but my heart just broke for those, those teenage boys, all yearning for forgiveness from their father. Um, and, you know, I was thinking the reality is our Heavenly Father, you know, he has come for us. You know, he didn't stick an ad in a newspaper to try and find us. He sent his son to the cross to come and find us, to rescue us. You know, we we have a heavenly father who offers us forgiveness in full through Jesus. And I know you've all heard that a million times before, but it's true. We have a heavenly father who offers us forgiveness in full through Jesus. He receives us like the father receives the prodigal son. He forgives us, he embraces us, he welcomes us into his family, and he rejoices over us. It's not just we who do the rejoicing. No, no, he rejoices over us. His child who was lost but is found, who was blind but who now can see. So in a moment, we're going to get a chance to rejoice (laughs) over our forgiveness. Um, So let's do that. and I just want to encourage us this week, let's, let's not be afraid to share what we have with others. Share the forgiveness we have. And David says, yeah, let's sing about it. Let's sing about this amazing forgiveness that we have.